This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, as the post office scandal continues to unfold, Marina Hyde urges us to keep watching and stay angry. What one man learned after 30 days of rejection therapy. And Oscar-winning actor Jodie Foster on beauty, bravery and raising feminist sons. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, ministers feigned shock while executives pointed fingers at others. But thanks to the impact of ITV's Mr. Bates versus the Post Office... Gradually, the truth is coming out. And the public anger is working, says Marina Hyde. Read by Briony Rule. Two weeks since ITV's Mr Bates vs the Post Office aired. And can you hear that sound? Can you feel the gathering thunder of politicians' hooves as the herd suddenly migrates towards the great plains of looking busy, of seeming outraged, of suddenly giving a toss? Everyone has been shocked by watching what they have done over the past few days, declared Rishi Sunak last Sunday, acting for all the world like he had found out about the most widespread miscarriage of justice in British legal history from a TV programme, which he didn't. Of the pursuit of more than 900 innocent sub-postmasters, some of whom were jailed, and the ruined lives of many more, the Prime Minister explained... Obviously, it's something that happened in the 90s, which it isn't. Prosecutions of innocent postmasters happened up until 2015, with the coalition government in place for the years in which the post office allegedly mounted a full-scale cover-up of the injustice it continued to mete out. Former post office CEO Paula Venels was awarded a CBE in 2019, which is also not in the 90s. And just as I was writing this, She's only gone and handed it back. The post office scandal is about two things. First, the ease with which corporate executives were able to pursue, demonise and destroy completely innocent people, particularly using the justification that technology should always be trusted over humans. And second, the ease with which those bigwigs have been able to escape any accountability themselves for doing something far, far worse than anything they wrongly accuse their most junior underlings of. They escaped it for decades, and are still escaping it. It's not just Venels who has questions to answer far beyond the issue of that CBE. There is a whole host of senior figures from the post office, Royal Mail and Fujitsu, which supplied and maintained the Horizon system, who were involved in or stood by the long-term policy of pursuing and privately prosecuting postmasters as well as successive ministers from the Gordon Brown administration onwards, who were made aware of the problems and either didn't really listen or chose to believe the post office. These are all people we should be furiously keen to hear more from. Not for them, the maximum security prisons, 
the social ostracization, the bankruptcies, the mental and physical breakdowns, the giving birth wearing an electronic tag. Ministers come and go, but the executives failed upwards. The upper tiers of business in this country seem almost impossible to be cast out from. One simply moves on lucratively elsewhere. A certain status of person in our society can be imprisoned for theft, or for non-theft, as it would turn out. Yet, for actions that led to the most widespread miscarriage of justice in British legal history, to the ruination of hundreds of lives, well, not one person has ever been charged. In a lot of cases, they seem to have been promoted. At last, one of our many successive governments looks like it is going to do something serious about the compensation and overturned convictions part of the sub-postmaster's story, but only because they can see the nation demands it. One thing we shouldn't have any truck with is people complaining that it took a TV drama to raise the issue to outrage national consciousness. I've been in touch with several people either involved in this story or who produced the earliest journalism on it, and you won't find a single one of them begrudging the way the scandal has finally gone nuclear. They are simply thrilled that somehow, anyhow, we might be moving closer to resolution for the victims. Forgive me, the surviving victims. Some thought ITV booking Nigel Farage for I'm a Celebrity would have a huge impact on public life. In fact, it won't affect where he goes from now one way or the other. That path was already set. But the ITV drama department's decision to commission Mr Bates versus the post office is far more significant and will be one of those rare TV dramas down the years that has a massive and measurable social impact. The story now leads the news in the mainstream media every single day. Many people found out about it for the first time after watching the programme. Many more only registered the scale and scandal of it having seen this complex tale of computer systems and accounting now dramatically rendered. That is public service broadcasting at its best and most powerful. Those hungry to learn more are directed to the public inquiry happening right now. It restarted last week after the Christmas break, to which the post office has repeatedly failed to hand over evidence. From last Thursday, the inquiry will hear testimony from a series of those who worked for Fujitsu. Or will it? Last summer, on the eve of a crucial evidence session from a former Fujitsu engineer, the post office suddenly found 4,767 documents it had neglected to disclose, so the witness's appearance was dramatically called off. There are frequently multiple significant documents that lawyers believe the post office and Fujitsu are not disclosing, as well as other evidence. Also last summer, unbelievably, it emerged that the current CEO of the post office had actually run a bonus scheme to reward executives for cooperating with the inquiry, surely their most basic civic and moral duty. This was at the same time that 81-year-old former sub-postmaster Francis Duff finally received £330,000 compensation for having lost everything during the scandal, only for the official receiver, part of the Department for Business, to immediately claw back 322000 of it to cover bankruptcy and owed income tax. He couldn't afford to heat his home last winter. Meanwhile, I keep reading that the post office has been compensating victims, however slowly or, in many cases, not at all. In fact, two years ago, the post office asked the government to step in to pay the bill, or else it would be insolvent. The government agreed. So, the entity compensating victims has largely been the taxpayer. Us. Again, bit weird to think the then-Chancellor Rishi Sunak affects to have learned about the story from the telly two weeks ago. But there you are. Fujitsu has not paid a penny in compensation, instead picking up billions of pounds of further government contracts and continuing to do so. Finally, for now, I will say the post office scandal has hundreds of human tragedies at its heart, but it is not a natural disaster. These types of victims exist because there are perpetrators, and unless those involved are held to account, we will continue to present as a society with one rule and endless get-outs for executives and quite another for the little people. The inquiry continues. 
The story continues. Stay angry and keep watching. That was We've Seen Heroes Emerge from the Post Office Scandal. Now focus on the villains by Marina Hyde. Read by Brani Rule. Next. Could one man really handle the soul-crushing embarrassment of being turned down by total strangers? Writer Joe Stone tries rejection therapy, the latest TikTok self-improvement trend. Read by George Georgiou. My heart is hammering. My head is humming with tension. And there's a real possibility I may vomit. No, I haven't been set up on a blind date with Piers Morgan. Instead, I'm about to approach a stranger in a packed King's Cross station and ask to borrow £100. I choose a middle-aged man with a kind face and a red scarf and quietly make my request so as not to be overheard by commuters grabbing their lunch. He studies my face for the longest three seconds of my life before deciding, not unreasonably, that he can't really say yes without knowing what it's for. That's fine. I've already succeeded. The whole point of the exercise was to experience the soul-crushing embarrassment of being rejected by a total stranger, something I've committed to doing every day for a month. What terrible decisions led me to this point? I recently had a humbling experience after telling my therapist that I don't think of myself as a particularly fearful person. She responded by asking whether I thought it was significant that I regularly wake myself up screaming. Momentarily blindsided by her sardonicism, I had to concede that she raised an interesting point. Night terrors aside, I suppose that I am quite scared of all the usual things. Failure, social humiliation, the impending climate apocalypse. Some unusual things too. Fred West. I know he's dead, but that doesn't stop me waking up in the night convinced that he's lurking in my room. Coleslaw. People sitting on my bed in their outside clothes. According to my editor, this makes me a perfect candidate to try out rejection therapy. Pioneered by IT worker turned self-help guru Jason Cummerley, it began as a card game challenging players to place themselves in the path of rejection by, for example, inviting a stranger to a game of rock, paper, scissors, or requesting a lower interest rate from a credit card provider, once a day for 30 days, thereby inoculating them against fear. Recently, its popularity has exploded on TikTok, where hashtag rejection therapy has more than 98 million tags, alongside videos of users asking strangers for hugs, dancing alone in the supermarket, or releasing guttural screams in the gym. I tell my editor that the mere thought of doing any of those things is elevating my heart rate by an unhealthy degree. Even more reason to do it, she replies sadistically. Neil Tennant once described the Pet Shop Boys as a struggle between total embarrassment and total shamelessness. I can relate. The first time I interviewed a celebrity for a backpage quiz in the gay magazine I was interning for, I was required to ask Danny Dyer whether he was flexible enough to fillet himself. I have a nervous phone manner at the best of times, and during this call, my voice rose to such a high pitch that I realised Danny was flirting with me on the presumption that I was a woman. Say cock again, darling. These early experiences made me feel unembarrassable around celebrities. Conversely, I can find everyday interactions quite mortifying. I loathe talking to strangers and have been known to make other people order for me in restaurants when I'm feeling especially delicate. Perhaps it's the traumatic legacy of having been a very camp child. It's possible I'm just a wimp. I decide the birthday party of one of my boyfriend's friends will be a good soft launch for my experiment in ritual humiliation. Most of the crowd are middle-class Bristol softboys who are genetically predisposed to being agreeable. In the smoking area, I tell someone I like her very generic red lighter and ask if I can have it. She says yes. This is easy. Later, I ask a DJ if he'll play All Too Well, the 10-minute Taylor Swift ballad about Jake Gyllenhaal stealing her scarf. The scarf is either a metaphor for her virginity or an actual scarf, but I'm not sure he can hear my explanation over the techno. He says no, 
but is very friendly about it, so I don't feel particularly ashamed. I'm going to have to up the stakes if I want to be met with a hard rejection. Perhaps I could call my GP surgery and request an appointment. The knowledge that I have to find someone to disgrace myself in front of every day weighs heavily. I find myself scanning crowds for a good target, like the Zodiac Killer. If people look open and friendly, then I don't want to take advantage. Equally, I don't want any of the scarier characters to take offence and, I don't know, murder me? I live in an unfriendly part of North London where I was once spat at outside the post office in what I assumed to be a homophobic attack, but may just have been a reflection of my inherent unlikability. Asking a local stranger to swap outfits with me feels... optimistic. I alight upon a plan with a built-in getaway method and ask a fellow cyclist at a red light whether we can swap bikes. He asks me to repeat the question, looks mildly disgusted, then fixes his gaze ahead and ignores me until the lights change. I'm so flustered and humiliated by this interaction that I pull off the main road to avoid continuing behind him. I don't feel edified or improved. I feel like a psychopath. As I spiral into increasing regret at having agreed to undertake this challenge, I also begin to feel guilty that I've mistreated this cyclist somehow, that this bizarre interaction will play on his mind, and that he'll wonder why he was targeted. I suppose the TikTokers who do the challenge view their victims as collateral damage in their quest for viral fame, but I'm not even going to achieve that. At best, local infamy will mean that undesirables give me a wide berth. I arrange a call with Jia Zhang, whose TED Talk detailing his own experiments with rejection therapy has been viewed more than 10 million times. He was a struggling entrepreneur when he stumbled across the concept and had recently had his confidence knocked when a potential investor berated him over his idea for an app. I decided I needed to overdose on rejection, he tells me, because my fears were preventing me from pursuing my dreams. His challenges included offering to plant a flower in a stranger's garden and asking to sit on Santa's lap. Rejection therapy changed my life, he says. The first couple of rejections felt like death. On an intellectual level, I knew I would survive, but it was very nerve-wracking, like standing in front of a lion. Then it got easier, and I see the world differently now. I view it through a lens of abundance. If you open up to other people, they might open up to you. These days, Zheng is a spokesperson for rejection and runs camps encouraging pupils to become fearless. One person was suicidal because his wife had left him. After committing to doing something that made him uncomfortable every day, he asked a woman he met in a coffee shop out on a date. A year later, he invited me to their wedding. Does he have any tips for me? If you're relaxed and smiling, it puts people at ease rather than feeling they're being cornered. And at the very start, acknowledge you're asking for a big favour and recognise they might not be able to fulfil it. If people know they have the freedom to say no, it allows them to be open-minded rather than automatically saying no. Inspired by Jiang, I have a smoother interaction when I spot a rambunctious woman in a purple gilet, marching along with three dogs on leads and a fourth in a stroller. I ask if I can stroke the one in the pram and she seems delighted proceeding to offer his exhaustive biography, including likes, dislikes and a concerning catalogue of health problems. I toy with the idea of asking if I can have him, but I don't want to scare her. I'm also not sure I can afford his various treatment plans, should she agree. At the merch stand of a Madonna concert, I ask if I can have two t-shirts for the price of one. No, we're not allowed to do that, comes the vendor's curt reply, as if it's the 60th time he's been asked. He also tells my friend he can't try on a sweatshirt and refuses to give us a bag for our purchases, so I can only deduce he has had more than enough of Madonna fans and our bullshit. A popular TikTok rejection theory challenge involves going into a mattress store and asking to take a nap. This is one I've been dreading, and I'd feel even more apprehensive when I arrive at my nearest furniture shop and find that I'm the sole customer. I rule out asking the first salesman, too scary, before realising that he is the only member of staff. He doesn't seem particularly phased by my request, telling me, you can. Obviously, they're covered up, so it might not be the most comfortable. It turns out that what is even more mortifying than asking to go to sleep in his workplace 
is spending several minutes lying motionless with my eyes closed. Thankfully, when I squint them, he's gone to a different part of the shop floor. Later that week, I notice a bricklayer building a wall outside one of the houses on my street. I ask him if I can have a go, and I'm met with a beaming smile. He demonstrates how to apply mortar to a brick with a pointed trowel before affixing it to the row. I hadn't expected him to say yes, and in my nervousness, I fluff the process twice and have to start again. I live up the road, so I'll always know which one is my brick, I say. He laughs and taps it with the trowel. This one. He seems amused by our interaction, and it's the first challenge that has felt anything approaching fun. At home, I start to panic that I'll become some kind of manic pixie dream boy who dances self-adoringly next to buskers. I'm brought back down to earth the next evening when I call an Italian restaurant to ask if they'll make me a heart-shaped margarita and I'm told, only round pizzas, by a harassed-sounding woman who clearly thinks I'm an imbecile. Fair. Every day, my mind buzzes with ways to degrade myself. I discount asking a mother on Tottenham Marshes if I can have a go at pushing her baby in its pram. Too creepy. And requesting that the biggest man in my gym have a go at lifting me up. Same. Perspective challenges begin to feel like intrusive thoughts, like the ones that tell you to jump whenever you're standing on a bridge. Should I undress on the tube? Ask my optician for a snog. I wonder whether the challenge will fail to make me fearless but succeed in giving me an anxiety disorder. A therapist friend tells me that what I'm doing is essentially exposure therapy, the practice of subjecting a patient to increasing quantities of the thing they're scared of until they become desensitized to it. I'm about to argue that it's surely scientifically impossible to become entirely unembarrassable. Then I remember Nadine Doris. According to Dr. Becky Spellman, a counselling psychologist and clinical director of Private Therapy Clinic, my fears that the challenge could backfire aren't entirely unfounded. The effectiveness of rejection therapy in confronting and managing fears is not as well established as exposure therapy, she tells me. In 30 days of rejection therapy, individuals might develop increased confidence in dealing with minor social rejections or become more comfortable with asking for what they want, but the impact may be limited without comprehensive therapeutic intervention. Spellman also cautions that while rejection therapy may have some benefits, there are also potential risks. Repeated exposure to rejection without proper support or guidance could lead to increased anxiety or distress. It occurs to me that perhaps I should have consulted an expert about the likelihood of irreparable psychological damage before I began launching myself at unsuspecting strangers. But I'm in too deep to back out now. I discover that nightclubs are fertile grounds for asking odd questions. People are either in exceptionally high spirits or just exceptionally high. A suggested challenge is to ask a stranger if you can take their picture for no reason. And I do this with abandon. Most people agree. No questions asked, which is surely proof that Instagram has melted our brains. On one night out, I ask if I can pour my own pint and I'm told no by a barmaid who doesn't even bother to make eye contact. By this point, being dismissed as an ignorable inconvenience feels like a win. The quicker the rejection arrives, the better. Towards the end of the challenge, I find myself on an Avanti West Coast train on my way to visit my nephews. I approach the onboard shop and gingerly ask an older woman behind the counter whether it might be possible for me to make an announcement over the tannoy. Don't ask me, that's her job, she says, gesturing to her younger, red-haired colleague, who fixes me with a conspiratorial smile and replies, Of course, what do you want to say? I hadn't anticipated there being any chance they would agree, and I'm momentarily flummoxed. I've already announced that the shop is open, cautions the first woman. Well, maybe I could remind everyone that it's still open, I suggest. Let's go for it, laughs the second woman, gesturing to a small cabin next to the shop with a mounted phone handset and a panel of buttons. She presses a yellow button and gives the thumbs up when it's time for me to speak. Just a reminder that the shop is open in Coach C, I croak. Thank you. We both giggle like schoolchildren, and I return to my seat lightheaded 
as if I've just eaten a three-course meal consisting entirely of laughing gas. At moments like this, the challenge feels less punishment and more adrenaline sport. In the minutes before making one of my bizarre requests, I'm flooded with such anxiety that the release that comes with actually asking the question feels preferable to stewing in my own cortisol. I never look forward to my challenges, but often feel a strange sense of accomplishment when they're done. It's not the feeling of achievement you might get from, say, earning a promotion or single-handedly derailing Justin Timberlake's music career. It's more what a final girl might feel to be alive at the end of a slasher movie, giddy relief at having survived. After 30 days, the challenge ends with a whimper when I ask a teenage sales assistant in Halfords if I can use his staff discount to buy an inner tube. He says no. Am I transformed? I've definitely been surprised by some people's willingness to accommodate my strange demands, but I'm not entirely sure how this would improve my life unless I decide to become a full-time train announcer. The one time I tried to leverage the challenge for any material gain by asking for an unrealistically high fee to syndicate one of my articles, the person never responded to my email. The experiment also didn't succeed in making me immune to fear, embarrassment or rejection, but that could be a good thing. Perhaps the world has enough entitled white men making unreasonable demands. While the meek might not inherit the earth, they also won't cause an obstruction in the prep queue haggling for a discount or clutter up John Lewis napping on the merchandise. I guess you could say that I'm rejecting rejection therapy. It's what it would have wanted. That was Feel the Fear and Ask Bizarre Things Anyway. What I Learned from 30 Days of Rejection Therapy by Joe Stone. Read by George Georgiou. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this episode in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally. For a long time, the actor Jodie Foster was the most visible lesbian in Hollywood. Not that she really wanted to talk about it. Now, the True Detective star feels liberated and is helping the younger generation follow suit. By Emma Brox. Read by Sue Ann Braun. It is roughly 58 years since Jodie Foster's first acting role, and there are things she won't put up with on set. She won't be told how to get into character. She won't tolerate what she calls voodoo directing. That is amdram, shake-your-body-out nonsense. She won't respond to certain types of alpha interference from people up the industry chain. The only time Foster submits to bossy producers, she says, is when they are super-passive-aggressive British people, a type she just can't resist. In work mode and outside interactions with the press, she is conscientious, matter-of-fact, with almost no performance anxiety or self-consciousness. I approach a story or character in the same way I do a book report, she says. I like to make it pragmatic. We are in a hotel suite in West Hollywood, where the 61-year-old is charming and pleasant, with gel-spiked hair, tiny-waisted black trousers, and a crisp white shirt popped at the collar. She could be a matador, or someone in high-end catering, 
and the sheer familiarity of her face and manner is startling. The voice and smile, the teasing laugh and intensity, evoke decades of iconic roles, from Clary Starling in Silence of the Lambs and Sarah Tobias in The Accused, back to her childhood roles in Taxi Driver and Bugsy Malone. Foster kicks off her mules to reveal red-painted toenails and tucks her legs up under her, an unsteady gesture, or a knowing one. After five decades of fame, I imagine she understands as well as I do that she tucks her legs up under her is the type of dumb-line profile writers like to use to summon fake intimacy. There is another side to Foster, one that is markedly less straightforward and over the years has made much of the coverage of her painful to read. She can be intensely self-conscious, a state if not wholly created, then certainly intensified by the experience of having journalists test every conceivable angle to get the subject of her sexuality on the table. For a long time, Foster was the only visible gay woman in Hollywood, and these days her ability to talk publicly about her life is mired in something that, to me, looks a lot like PTSD. Anyway, here we are, ostensibly to talk about True Detective Night Country, the fourth season of the broy cult anthology show previously stewarded by Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, and that this season finally features some women. Foster plays Liz Danvers, chief of police of Annis, a godforsaken small town in the far north of Alaska, where we join the story on the eve of permanent night, the two months of the year when that part of the world is in darkness. It's a police procedural, an odd couple buddy drama, an affecting depiction of North American indigenous life, and like the other true detectives, a tale of the supernatural that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but still offers a highly enjoyable ride. Foster's cop, Alaska Karen, as she puts it, is lonely and embittered, spitting out lines like, Stop where you are, Ennis police, fucker. As roles go, it's not a big stretch for Foster who enjoyed shooting the six-parter in Iceland. But there is a satisfying arc for her character that is clearly her kind of thing. A more arresting feature of the show is considering what it must have been like for the relatively young cast and crew to work alongside Jodie Foster. Apart from Fiona Shaw, who plays a former university professor living on the edge of town and with whom Foster had no scenes, they dine together, she says. The production is made up of mostly new and inexperienced performers. Kaylee Reese, who is brilliant as Evangeline Navarro, Danvers' indigenous sidekick, was until recently a professional boxer. Isa Lopez, the director, is a successful Mexican writer who has made a handful of Spanish-language movies, including the fantasy horror film Tigers Are Not Afraid. But this is her first big project in the U.S. Foster, by contrast has been in about 50 productions, directed multiple films and TV episodes, won two Best Actress Oscars for The Silence of the Lambs and The Accused. Some singular quality in Foster that is hard to describe, a kind of flinching intensity, perhaps, along with the sheer volume and standard of her work, puts her close to being an icon. What on earth can it have been like for the young people working with her? She won't have this, of course. Well, I'm pretty fun. I mean, I don't take anything seriously. I make jokes all the time. She pauses. And, you know, I'm not an expert. This makes me laugh out loud. You are the definition of an expert. You've been doing this job since you were three years old. Imagine De Niro or Pacino saying such a thing. Foster smiles. Not really. I just know me. I don't really know anybody else, and even as a director, I'm not really an actor's director, interestingly. Foster's directorial debut, the 1991 movie Little Man Tate, in which she also starred, has been followed in her directing career by a handful of movies and individual episodes of TV shows such as Orange is the New Black and Black Mirror. I really let the actors do their thing and just hope I cast correctly. I'm not somebody who can tease a performance on Take 200. I believe that you cast and allow something to happen on screen, and if you do it fast enough, people don't overthink themselves. 
She has very particular requirements when it comes to being directed herself. And if there was any difficulty on True Detective, well, not difficult, but the little dance that has to be done, it was with the director, Lopez. She has directed four movies, and I've been in so many films, and I think that part is sometimes daunting. But we bonded immediately and laughed through everything. I like it when directors tell me what they want and say things like, faster, slower. I'm not interested in directors who are like, she puts on a whispery, lovey-ish voice. Here, let me shake you. She might have to do that with other people because they're young or they've never acted before. And I would watch her do that with them and foster snorts. You'd better not do that with me. This is the second consecutive project in which Foster has worked with much less experienced directors. On the recent Netflix movie, Nyad, in which Foster plays Bonnie Stoll, the best friend and coach of marathon swimmer Diana Nyad, she was working with an even less seasoned team. First-time feature directors Elizabeth Chai Vassarelli and Jimmy Chin, who had previously only worked in documentary film. I loved Nyad, partly because it was so funny and well-written, partly because Annette Bening is brilliant in the title role, and partly because of Foster, who is more relaxed on screen than anything I've seen her in since she made Freaky Friday at the age of 13. It is nice, for once, to see her playing someone who isn't slogging through a trauma or being launched alone into space. In Nyad, she is loose-limbed and full of easy humor and jokes. Her performance has just been nominated for a Golden Globe. As far as I'm aware, it's the first time Foster has played an out lesbian. There is a separate essay to be written about gay subtext in her depiction of Clary Starling in The Silence of the Lambs, which lesbians will give you chapter and verse on, the boots, the duffel coat, the way she shrinks and smirks in relation to the male characters. I could go on. The press around the film, particularly when Hacks brought up the fact that both lead characters were gay, was customarily awkward. It is worth pointing out here that it is harder for gay women than gay men in Hollywood, where there is no female equivalent of, say, showrunner Ryan Murphy. Well, there is, but she's so far back in the closet she's practically in Narnia. I don't blame Foster for withdrawing. Questions about her life aren't overtly hostile or mocking these days, but there is often still a judgment behind them. From straight people, broadly, why are you still so bent out of shape by this? And from the gay press, why didn't you do more back in the day? I tell Foster I love Nyad, and she says brightly, Oh, thanks. I love those two, Bonnie and Diana. So that was the number one reason to do it. I knew them from barbecues and stuff. There is a trauma narrative in Nyad that is subtly handled. As a teen swim champion, Nyad was molested by her coach. Obviously, they're young filmmakers, and there was a lot of... We all brought our thoughts to the table, having made movies about victims of sexual violence. They shot a lot more than they put in. Instead, the film focuses on Nyad's record-breaking swim from Cuba to Florida, undertaken at the age of 64 and in the face of immense physical risks. The important thing to Diana and me and Annette was, we cannot think that she achieves the swim because of the molestation. My happiest moment in the film is when Bonnie says, as an aside, Oh, I read in the paper that he, the coach, died. And Diana says, he didn't mark me. It's just that sometimes, every once in a while, I feel like I'm 14 again and fighting this stuff. Personally, I like the hangout scenes at the start of the movie, when Foster and Benning are chilling at home in L.A., playing table tennis and Scrabble. Yeah, I love those scenes. To achieve Bonnie's washboard stomach, Foster worked out like an athlete for six months, she swans about the movie in cut-off shorts and a vest, brandishing her clipboard and whistle like the world's buffest P.E. teacher. She has always been portrayed as a nerd, but in light of the evidence, isn't she really just as much of a jock? Foster laughs loudly. I've been waiting to be objectified my entire life, so I'm very happy that people have started talking about my body parts. Foster spoke recently about her 50s being a tricky decade of transition in which she had to figure out in the absence of many role models, how to be a woman above a certain age in Hollywood. She found an answer in friendships, both up and down the age range. I have a friend who I adore, who's 80. She's a college professor. She lived in a commune in the early 70s, 
She's an extraordinary person. I get to see what's ahead, what's possible. For all of her accomplishments, what she keeps saying, which I think is really true, is that the greatest thing is helping communities of other women. What does she think young people in her industry need to hear? They need to learn how to relax, how to not think about it so much, how to come up with something that's theirs. I can help them find that, which is so much more fun than being, with all the pressure behind it, the protagonist of the story. I mentioned to Foster that I saw a photo of her recently with the young British actor Bella Ramsey, the non-binary star of the HBO zombie hit The Last of Us, and who, at 20 years old, is on the brink of megastardom. Last month, Ramsey introduced Foster at the Elle magazine Women in Hollywood Celebration, a pairing Foster says she requested herself. I reached out to Bella because we'd never met and said, I want you to introduce me at this thing, which is a wonderful event about actors and people in the movies, but is also very much a fashion thing, which means it's determining who represents us. The organizers are very proud of themselves because they've got every ethnicity, and I'm like, yeah, but all the attendees are still wearing heels and eyelashes. There are other ways of being a woman, and it's really important for people to see that. And Bella, who gave the best speech, was wearing the most perfect suit, beautifully tailored, and a middle parting, and no makeup. As a mentoring relationship, it's part of a pattern, says Foster. I do a lot of reaching out to young actresses. I'm compelled. Because it was hard growing up. When she looks at Ramsey, who told British Vogue earlier this year that I'm not 100% straight, does she feel a pang of sympathy for her younger self? Yes. It was so bleak. But I had my mom, you know. Foster's late mother, Brandy, was a force of nature in the entertainment industry who raised her four children in L.A. and stewarded Foster from the age of three when she first put her up for commercials to stardom. Could she have worn a suit and had a severe middle parting with no makeup when she was coming up as a young actor? No, she says. Because we weren't free. Because we didn't have freedom. And hopefully, that's what the vector of authenticity that's happening offers. The possibility of real freedom. We had other things that were good. And I would say I did the best I could for my generation. I was very busy understanding where I fitted in and where I wanted to be in terms of feminism but my lens wasn't wide enough. I lived in an incredibly segregated world. I mentioned something she said the other day about fear dictating most of our choices. It can. It keeps you safe. But it's also warping, isn't it? Beyond a certain point. Well, it's a survival skill, but one that will kill you eventually. I should add that for all her cheerleading of Gen Z, Foster isn't above being irritated by them. They're really annoying, especially in the workplace. They're like, nah, I'm not feeling it today. I'm going to come in at 10.30 a.m. Or, like in emails, I'll tell them this is all grammatically incorrect. Did you not check your spelling? And they're like, why would I do that? Isn't that kind of limiting? Foster has two sons, Kit and Charles, who are in their 20s and whom she had with ex-partner, film producer Sidney Bernard. She and Bernard split up in 2008, and for the last 10 years, she has been married to the photographer Alexander Hedison. A funny effect of her son's upbringing, says Foster, was their early confusion over how precisely to be male. My two don't like sports, she says. They like to watch movies and sit at home, and they're really into their female friends. They're super feminist. And there was a moment with my older when he was in high school, when, because he was raised by two women, three women, it was like he was trying to figure out what it was to be a boy. And he watched television and came to the conclusion, oh, I just need to be an asshole. I understand. I need to be shitty to women and act like I'm a fucker. And I was like, no, that is not what it is to be a man. That's what our culture has been selling you for all this time. The phase went on for six months, she says. Did she let it play out? Yes and no. I was like, you won't be talking to me like that. Foster burst into laughter. Meanwhile, her wife has just had a short documentary called Luke, 
a portrait of the non-binary author, poet, and comedian Alukvad Menon, accepted by Sundance, which Foster says makes her very proud. Although Foster served as the short film's executive producer, they are not overly involved in each other's work. We like doing our work independently, although there are things that I do better, she recognizes. Sounds ominous. Like what? I'm a really good letter writer, and she's extraordinarily visual. Great photographer. Getting to this place of seeming security and happiness with Hedison has been a struggle for Foster. Even minor celebrity is corrosive, and Foster's fame is ridiculous. It has taken years of work, she says, not to be ruined by it. There is a meta-weirdness to having been a public figure from the time you were young, right? Especially if you have stayed being an actor. It wasn't until she took time off mid-career that she realized just how odd her life was. Suddenly, I had lots of time where I wasn't the most important person in the room, or not everybody was listening to the stupid shit I was ranting about. Being a public figure, your universe is altered and you don't know anything else. And you don't know that you're a blowhard and that you're not a good friend and that you never show up. Because people indulge you? Because people indulge you. So there are hard lessons you have to learn. There is something Hugh Grant said, which I thought was right on. That the fame thing at a young age is like being shot up with steroids and you live with those big muscles your whole life. And then, one day, you make the decision that there are no more steroids. And you don't recognize yourself and have no idea who you are. And you have to rebuild an entire identity. That can be difficult. And that's something I had to learn late. During the years Foster was with Bernard, she never took her to the Oscars or other public events and never publicly owned to their relationship, although she did later pay tribute to her in her 2013 Golden Globe speech, when after thanking Bernard, she said, I'm so proud of our modern family. What's the reckoning, I ask? Is it someone telling you they can't live with you anymore because you're so awful? Yes, definitely. An actor's life is not a good life to be self-aware. It's very easy to be unself-aware. Presumably, the magnetic pull back towards being an asshole is strong. Although, says Foster, she has strategies in place. I think, healthily, I created compartments around things. But the compartments are problematic for my relationships, she laughs. I don't want people to know me in this context. She indicates the surroundings of the interview. This is just mine. My friends don't know it. My kids didn't know what I did for a living till quite late. They had no idea. I never brought them on set. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? I guess it's good. But then there's other actors whose kids are like, oh, I lived in Romania when my parent was filming, and I did this and that, and I didn't do any of that with my kids. Maybe they would have had adventures or something. The point is, she says, there's nothing normal about being a public figure from the time when you were young. And there's a lot of negotiating around that, to figure out how to be a whole person. It can't have been easy for her, and yet she still gets a lot of shtick for the decisions she has made over the years. And I will never be able to explain, she says, because unless you were there, you don't get it. There are choices that I made that people can say, why did you do that? Well, you didn't walk in my shoes. Try to walk in my shoes and you'll find out. I have one quick question about The Silence of the Lambs. One thing about Foster's acting is that, because of the intelligence she brings to her roles, she very rarely caves into cliché. When she won the Best Actress Oscar for The Silence of the Lambs in 1992, it was for a role that felt like nothing we had seen on screen before. The chemistry between Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter and Foster as the trainee FBI agent made the movie, but of the two of them, it was Foster's film. There's a scene at the end where Clarice is groping her way through the killer's house in the pitch dark, and he's watching her through night vision goggles, and her hand, holding the gun out in front of her, is shaking with nerves. It runs against every boilerplate depiction of the hard-charging FBI agent. She is quivering with fear, and my question is, was that detail Foster's or director Jonathan Demme's idea? It was my idea. Knew it! That felt right to me. There was something unexpected about Clarice, 
that she was able to have power but was so vulnerable and had that smallness. She recognized that she wasn't powerful physically, and it didn't occur to me that there was anything revolutionary about that. You're playing somebody who could be what we see as a male character, the action guy, but she's not. She's Clarice. Foster could be describing herself. The contrast between smallness and power is somehow central to her appeal and is also present in her ability to enforce boundaries off-screen. I'm not a multitasker. I'm a weird, focused person. If there's a spectrum, that's my spectrum. It doesn't matter if there are planes going by or if someone's calling my name. If I'm focused on something, I'm really good at going, no thank you, I am not doing that. No kidding. She won't be moved and she won't be put upon. And, at this point in her life, she won't be made to feel bad about any of it, either. You can get a skin as an actor, not just for being criticized, but told what to do. Can you move your body there? Can you do this? Can you be emotional here? I learned how to do all that, and I will not. For decades, Foster was chastised in public for doing it wrong and lectured on how she should be doing it instead. And now, she says, looking at me rather pointedly, I'm like, I'll do it for my job, and I'm not going to do it for you. That was There Are Different Ways of Being a Woman. Jodie Foster on Beauty, Bravery and Raising Feminist Sons by Emma Brocks. Read by Sue Ann Braun. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Brownie Rule, George Georgiou, and Sue Ann Braun, and presented by me, Savannah Ayode Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.